Recording in progress. Everybody, welcome back to the Noel Castler podcast, episode seventy-four. I think it is. Joining me on Sunday morning, if you're listening, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy for all your support. Sorry, putting the guitar down. That's the trusty sixty-five LG Gibson LG that I took on the road for many years. I don't know what that was. I just played you. Still waking up here, but uh, happy to be here. Happy that you're listening. Happy to wrap up another week of insanity. At least we had nice weather. It's hot. I got back from L.A. on Tuesday, back here in the Hudson Valley. Beautiful weather, nice breeze. It's getting warm, and I'm getting psyched to go to Cape Cod. I'm doing the music room in West Yarmouth, Massachusetts on Wednesday, 8 p.m. Come on out. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's still some tickets. If you're on the Cape this summer, or in Rhode Island, or want to even drive down from Boston, you're more than welcome. It's going to be a good time. Got my buddy Ethan opening up. Ethan Hershenfeld is joining me, and then I'm going to do my full set, and it's a lot of fun if you've seen it before, so come on out. See it again. I'll make it different. But we got a lot to talk about, right? I got a lot to talk about on stage, and I got a lot to talk about on the podcast, because the news doesn't slow down anymore, and... We're in a crucial time, you know, we're heading into an election in November that in many ways will determine the future of this country, you know, not forever, but the immediate future. It'll determine whether Biden gets anything done in the rest of his term, and he deserves to get things done because all things considered, he's accomplishing a hell of a lot and sending him good wishes too. He just got COVID again, which is out there. So many people are getting it. You know, if the president of the United States can get it twice, we anybody can get it. I haven't gotten it yet, knock on wood. But, um, you know, I play it safe with that stuff. Not that he doesn't. It's just, you know, I, I just traveled across the country. I wore two masks on the plane. You know, I wore masks everywhere I went. I don't understand getting on a plane and not wearing a mask. But um, anyway, I'm digressing there. You know, if, if, if the Republicans take back the House and the Senate, it's going to be nothing but chaos. Right. You're just going to have Jim Jordans and Lauren Boebert's and MTG's and all these little freak Matt Gates types just, you know, indicting, you know, investigating Fauci, talking about Hunter Biden on the floor of Congress, all kinds of crazy things that have nothing to do with governing and protecting the American people and providing for the American people in the most tumultuous time in any of our lifetimes. You know, let's be honest. These last five years have just been batshit crazy. Sorry to curse. But, you know, how can you say anything else? You know, when you look at this week and you look at Trump on his golf course, you know, looking like a dead beached whale or something, you know, he looks like something you dig out of sand because that's a cooking technique, you know, poi or whatever. It just, it doesn't, he's so mottled and, uh, bloated and just obviously out of it, like watching him, you know, 
drive his golf cart onto the greens of his course, you know, where he buried his wife a week ago. It's beyond the pale, you know, and, and obviously people are talking about burying Ivana there and the tax breaks he gets because he does. He gets out of sales tax. But people forget he keeps goats on that property because if you have like nine or ten goats, you get out of property taxes. So he's gotten out of millions of dollars of pay of taxes of property taxes for the last 17 years because he claims it's a farm. It's not a farm. It's a golf course. Jared and Ivanka have a cottage there called Kushner Cottage that they renovated while they were in the White House. It was like a 5,000-foot cottage that they added, you know, a pickleball court and a sauna and, a, you know, all kinds of stuff. I think it's like 15,000 feet or something now. You know, they turned it into a little mansion on the property. So it's not a farm, but he paid $700 in property taxes in 2020. You know, that's insane. You know, and he also punished people, you know, like myself, because he made the, the $10,000, the cap on writing off your property taxes when he became president, because he wanted to punish people in New York who didn't vote for him and people in California and stuff. And, you know, if you live in Westchester, your property taxes are, are you know, well over 15 grand on average. So the fact that the president of the United States, this billionaire is paying $700 in property taxes and having a big golf tournament there, right? How much wear and tear is that putting on the roads? Not to mention the golf tournament is backed by the Saudi Arabian government, who Jared Kushner courted from day one, okay? That $2 billion plan, I guarantee you, was in the works before Trump took office because they view everything through the lens of how much money can we make? How much can we grift and steal, right? And that would have been the ultimate paycheck, Vanki or Jared would have said, hey, you know, when we leave, we could start a hedge fund and we could do favors for, you know, overseas foreign governments while we're in the White House if they promise to invest when we leave. And that is clearly what they did with Saudi Arabia, right? The first trip t Trump took as president was to KSA, was to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And they had been prepped by Kushner and Vanki. Here's how you own my father. Here's how you appeal to him. He is the world's biggest narcissist. So they gave him the orb ceremony and they gave him the sword dance. And as soon as Air Force One landed and they were coming from the airport, Trump saw his face on the side of a building, like 500 feet long. They put a big poster on the side of the building. So they made it feel like he was, you know, showing up at the All-Star game or something. The NBA does that when you go into town, you know. That's what they did. They appealed to him and they owned him from day one. They just owned him. So then Saudi Arabia did whatever the hell they wanted in the Middle East for the last four and five years. And MBS killed somebody. He killed an American journalist, right? And when you bring that up to MAGA people, they say he wasn't an American, right? Because he had a foreign last name because that's how deep the racism goes and that's how confident MAGA is or Trump is that MAGA won't ever question what they're doing because the people that support him can't see past their own racism, their own lust for guns, their own lust to punish the other, to be just the most sort of despicable humans they can be because someone has now told them that's being a Christian, that's being a conservative. That's being a patriot. No, it's not. It's being a criminal. It's being the lowest rung on a criminal organization where the bosses do not even care for you. 
Okay, at least in the mob, they'll invite you to a Christmas party and give you some prosciutto or something if you're a henchman who delivers numbers or something to delis or, you know, burns down houses in Jersey because your boss tells you to, right? At least those guys get some respect, you know, from the bosses, from the capos and, you know, the dons and all that. Trump doesn't respect any of those people. How many MAGA people got an invite to Bedminster this weekend, right? How many of them got to spend the night in the Kushner Cottage? right, and watch the tournament for free. None of them. He wouldn't be caught dead anywhere near the people that support him. And now they're turning on him, you know. Now Fox is turning on him. MAGA isn't turning on him because he's built the cult, but Fox has made their shift, right? And that's what's dangerous, and Trump can sense it. He hasn't been interviewed on Fox in over 100 days. That's a long time for Trump. If you remember, he used to call into those morning shows and rant for an hour and Hannity would have him all on all the time and genuflect to him and all this stuff. They cut him off. They know that Ron DeSantis is a more disciplined sort of brand for them, you know, that will be easier to control, that won't like stew all the crazy. You know, he's crazier than Trump, you know, in terms of evilness, but he's not like the loose cannon that Trump is, the bloviating windbag of pus and bile that even people at Fox hated. Good friend of mine is an anchor at Fox, you know, and he's not one of the evil guys. You, you, you haven't heard of him. He was a Fox local affiliate and he does stuff on the weekends, but he's a normal guy. You know, they all hate him. You know, I don't think Sean Hannity actually likes Trump. Nobody does. His children don't like him. It's one of the secrets. If you're around him, nobody really likes him, but he gets people to work for him. You know, he does he does find the people that he can corrupt. He's always had an instinct for that. We learned this week that Chad Wolf, you know, deleted his text too. We learned that Kafari, I believe is how you say his name, who was the uh, IG for DHS, for Department of Homeland, Homeland, Home, Homeland Security, right, was basically on loan from Doug Ducey and Trump appointed him as an IG. And now that guy, you know, didn't tell Congress that all these Secret Service texts were missing. And we learned this week, Carol Lenig did great reporting at the Washington Post. We learned that they were, that the, the IG, that he was going to confiscate all these phones from DHS and Secret Service and try to retrieve this data. And then late on a Friday night, he sent out a memo to all his employees. Don't do it. Don't seize any phones. Don't retrieve any data. Just let it go. Right? that was like a year ago. He didn't tell Congress. He didn't tell the committee. He helped in the cover-up because that's who Trump finds. Let me get a guy in here. Let me make him acting, right, so he doesn't have to get any scrutiny from Congress and let him do my bidding. And Trump has always done that. He did it to the Secret Service. You know, I told you, I went to high school with Bobby Engel. You know, it was a guy who went into the Marines, Secret Service. Trump finds these cop types. You know, I like to think Bobby was even convict, conflicted. You know, Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony was that she was, you know, he had his head in his hands when she walked into the office. You know, the Tony Ornato guy was full on MAGA, right? He had a wa he had an appointment at the White House. He left the Secret Service to serve Trump even more, right? So that guy's not a law enforcement officer. He's a political operative at that point. But the other guys, you know, they buy into the bullshit, and then before they know it, they don't recognize themselves because Trump has corrupted them. Here, carry this bag for me. Don't ask what's in it. 
You didn't hear me say that. You didn't hear me say the N-word in the back of the limo and all this stuff. Trump, like, has Tourette's. I guarantee you he was saying the N-word all the time in the White House, you know? And that's almost minor to people, right? Because the things we need to hear about are what was on those texts with the Secret Service, what was on the Washington, you know, the White House call logs that disappeared for the seven hours worth of call logs. Like they covered this up in plain sight and we're still pretending like it's all normal. It's not normal. You know, Garland and Biden should have walked in there on January 21st and said, raise your hand if Trump appointed you. Now get your stuff and get the hell out of the building. You no longer serve in our government, right? And if any of those people were decent, we could bring them back in afterwards, right? But you got to get everybody outside of the building and do a sweep. That's what security does, right? I can't tell you how many events I've worked on with Secret Service. When they do a sweep before the president comes in a building, everybody has to leave that building, whether it's the Super Bowl or an inauguration or any of these other things I've done. You got to hard out. Hey, Secret Service is doing a sweep at 2 p.m. Everybody has to get out of the building because you have to see what's there, what could have been planted there, what kind of threat is there. You have to look at something to know what you have. It's like, you know, in, in AA, you do a moral inventory, right? Because any business that doesn't take stock of its saleable and unsaleable goods is not a well-run business. The government is a giant business, if you think about it, right? It's a giant bureaucracy with all kinds of independent agencies that have to be sort of honest about who's in them and what they're doing, or you don't know what you have, you know? And Trump was so beyond the pale that he perverted and disrupted our government and degraded it to the extent you don't know what was in there after he left. And now we're learning a year and a half later that the IG inspector for DHS was telling people not to go get the phones and was helping in the cover-up, you know? And that's something we should have learned a long time ago because now that information is gone, you know? And these people are in the wind, right? And it's harder to catch them. And Trump is out having rallies and golf tournaments and stuff, you know? You know, what is Matt Gates still doing trolling people? Dude should be in jail. You know, he was one of his henchmen. It came out that he told Roger Stone, you know, the tapes. You probably saw the tapes this week where he goes, hey, I talked to the big guy and he's definitely going to give you a pardon. So don't worry about that trial. Capiche? You know, what that means is, hey, keep your mouth shut and we'll take care of you. I talked to the boss. You're fine. You're one of the main capos. Don't worry about it. Right? That's who Matt Getz was. He was a little troll like wannabe suck up to Trump. That's who he finds. That's who he's always found, you know? Matt Gates was showing pictures of naked girls to other congressmen on the floor and saying, look at her, I, I banged her last night, right? Girls he was finding on Venmo and paying with cocaine. He showed up at a GOP fundraiser in Orlando with a sex worker and cocaine and had parties in a hotel room at a GOP fundraiser trying to find people to corrupt. That's what Trump does. He was showing those pictures on the floor of the Congress because he was looking for guys who would say, hey, I wouldn't mind some of that. And then he'd say, all right, come to Trump Hotel D.C. tonight. I'm having a little party, room 218. No biggie. I'll hook you up. I know a girl. She's got a friend. That's how Trump does it. He's done that since the plaza days. That's how he's gotten building permits. That's how he's gotten all kinds of contracts and banking connections because he gets compromised on people. You know, there's, I'm not making this up. This is true. There's a famous story 
you know, Wayne Barrett, a lot of these guys, uh, David Kay has reported this stuff, you know, uh, Richard Zirin, James Zirin rather has a great book called plaintiff in chief about Trump's 4,000 lawsuits. But you know, he would find somebody like a business associate and he'd want to sleep with the dude's wife. Right. So he'd find out the husband and what the husband liked. And then he'd invite the husband to the office and he'd be like, Hey, what do you like? You into Asian girls? I got some upstairs. Cause there were these brothels in Trump tower. And then the guy would, you know, if he took the bait would go have sex with, with one of the working girls in Trump tower. And then Trump would tape it, invite the wife into the office and play it for her, hoping that she would then sleep with him for revenge. I am not making that up. That is a Trump move. That is the kind of moral character of the guy who was running our country for four years or pretending to, he was filling his pockets, right? So that's who he was. And that's who the kind of people, those are the kind of people he has around them. And they found all these dudes within the GOP. But I'm getting to a larger point here. The people calling the shots, Jared and Ivanka, saw the long game, right? Because Trump deals in a world of narcissism. He's all about what he can fill inside of himself, how he can fill up that tiny little hole in his soul, right? It's all about the moment. He wants music to play when he walks in the room. He wants to get high and he wants to hit on women, you know? He wants to feel good on a Tuesday if it's Tuesday. He's not thinking about Friday. Jared and Ivanka are thinking about Friday and how they can get paid. So that's what that Saudi Arabia thing was, right? They prepped the kingdom of Saudi Arabia on how you appeal to their father emotionally. And once you do that, once you serve his narcissistic needs, policy secondary. You can do whatever you want because he's going to love you because you're giving him what he wants. You know, and that's so dangerous because in the wrong hands, as it was, Jared and Ivanka make $640 million while they're in the White House, right? And then they leave and get a $2 billion payout for a hedge fund when Jared has no institutional investment experience and he gets $2 billion starting his own hedge fund. He's never, he's not an investment banker. He's got a law degree that he never used. He never passed the bar. He only learned a couple of tricks in the law field so he could help his family rip off their tenants because they have all this low-income housing on the East Coast. And if somebody complains that they have a vermin infestation or something and they don't want to pay their rent until it gets taken care of, they threaten to countersue and they scare these lower-income people. That was the only reason Jared went to NYU and to hang out with his best friend who he shared a dorm with, you know? So, you know... It's all about the grift and it's all about how do we control our operation so we can grift more, right? And that takes handlers and Trump had a handler, you know, he's, he's sort of the, the evil kingpin and he's good instinctually at, at using his charisma, you know, for lack of a better word, but that's what it is to these kind of people. That's why they show up and clap for him. They think he's great because he flatters them and he gives them the illusion that they're his equals and they're not, you know, he wouldn't spit on them. It was that way when he ran the casinos, he used to have extra security when he walked the floor. So none of the people would come touch him. And the people were like 70 year old ladies that he'd bust in from Kentucky to put their social security checks into his, you know, slot machines. And then he'd send them home broke without even much as a free lunch. That's who he is. That's who the family is, you know, there's so much greed in those people. 
There is no morality like normal people have. Like they're a family of psychopaths. I'm not saying that as hyperbole. You know half of what this guy has done. You know, that's why they shouldn't have given him a pass on the vice crimes. Because that's where the real evil comes out. You know, he beat Ivana. You know, he beats his kids. He's a fucking psychopath. And that psychopath is having a, you know, a golf tournament for another psychopath who dismembered an American journalist because he didn't like the criticism that that guy was writing about him in the Washington Post. And Trump and Jared said, meh, it's no big deal. Doesn't affect us. And our racist base isn't going to care anyway because he's got a hard-to-say last name, Khashoggi, right? Which, ironically, is a distant relative of Adnan Khashoggi, and Trump helped launder that guy's yacht back in the 80s. Trump's scared of water. He can't swim. If you ever notice, you'll never see Trump on a boat or anything, which is rare for a billionaire. But the one time he bought a boat, he was laundering the arms dealer's money. So he bought a big yacht and then posed for a picture on the gangplank with Ivana, right? And then sold it. So, you know, the whole thing is just, you know, it's almost like exhausting to talk about it because people really like, at this point, still don't even know what a scumbag this guy is. And they probably won't for another 50 years until everything is written. You know, and some things you'll never know. There's a reason Ivana is buried on his golf course and it ain't just the tax returns. You know, a two-day autopsy, no toxicology report. Very convenient that she dies and that timing for him. And she was a mess. I know people who know her that saw her at Bill Bouquet or something a few days earlier and said she looked like a mess. I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead, but like she could have very well fallen on her own. You know, she was kind of boozy and stuff. I would do an event with her every year. But it was very convenient, very suspicious, and you don't normally get a two-day turnaround, you know, on an autopsy. And then uh, she's turned, you know, autopsy and she's buried on my private golf course course where you can't come exhume her, you know, and Trump has a long list of that kind of stuff. Harold Bornstein was his drug dealer. That was his Dr. Feelgood on the Upper East Side. That's the guy with the crazy hair. He was a gastroenterologist, you know, that Trump made his chief primary physician in the 80s because the guy wrote him scripts as he did much of the Upper East Side. And the guy had been sued before because people died because he overprescribed them with opioids. He was just, if you were rich on the Upper East Side and you needed a script, he was the guy you went to. He was on like East 74th or something. It wasn't a secret. I'm in recovery on the Upper East Side. You know, I know a lot of his former customers. But, and, and, and when Trump got elected, he sent Keith Schiller, Matthew Calamari, and his lawyer in there to steal the guy's records. You know? So... His me Trump's medical records, because you got 20 years worth of Adderall prescriptions and God knows what else, benzos and, you know. So anyway, that guy died mysteriously in January of 20 when all this stuff was going down. And it wasn't in the papers. His, his family didn't announce it. He just shows up dead in his house in Scarsdale. And his family quietly took out a little op-ed in the New York Times, and that was it. That was the death announcement. No cause of death listed. No nothing. Right. Another very convenient death in the world of Trump, you know, so it's happened, you know, since the 80s. And you've heard me talk about it. But, you know, he's a mob boss that basically that's that's what you're dealing with here. And, and you can see how vast this conspiracy was. You had people at the Pentagon going along with January 6th. You had Chad Wolf, who built himself an alibi to be outside of the country. 
you know, who also engineered the beatdown on protesters in Oregon on behalf of Trump to please Trump. You know, he sent unidentified masked troops in to attack people that were just protesting police brutality as it should be protested, as it's one of the biggest scourges in our country, right? And Trump sent these unmarked troops in to beat them down with masks on their faces. They were snatching people off the streets and throwing them in vans. You know, it was like insane, you know, stuff you'd see in the Soviet Union. That was the guy who did it, Chad Wolf with a fake porn star name, you know? And that guy had himself an alibi and got out of the country, you know, it was in the Mideast on January 6th. What is the director of Homeland Security doing in the Mideast when you had threats for weeks? Everybody knew something was going to happen on January 6th. Trump was saying it on Twitter. It's going to be wild. Law enforcement knew and no protections were in place. And the people in charge happened to be out of the country or they had stand down orders from the Pentagon and you couldn't get the National Guard involved. And the, the Capitol Police themselves had been told to go easy on the protesters because they were Trump people. Would they have gone easy on them if they were Black Lives Matter people? Of course they wouldn't. Would have been a bloodbath, right? But Trump had enough people in enough places to get away with it, right? And he, he has gotten away with it, right? We got some hope that the DOJ is doing something, but it's been a year and a half. A lot of those people should have been fired. We shouldn't be hearing about Kafari now that the IG was in on the cover-up a year and a half later. That dude should have been out on day one. You know, because you're not dealing with normal times. And I understand why institutionalists wanted to go back to being institutionalists. But if everybody working there is a Trump sycophant and an acting whatever who didn't come up through the normal way, then they're not legit. And you don't have an honest business. You're not running an operation where you know what is in your inventory. And you got not only spoiled goods, you got toxic stuff in there, right? that'll kill democracy, that'll kill people. You know, if, if you're working in a restaurant and you got a salt shaker and it comes in contact, it falls on the ground. I was, you know, here, here's an example. I was having lunch on Santa Monica last Monday, right? At some beach cafe. If you, it was wonderful if you ride up the coast. And this little table next to me had a kid and the mom was letting the kid just climb over everything and throw the salt shakers in the sand and just no kind of parenting whatsoever. And, uh, we had this wonderful waiter, Jose, and, he, you know, he was great and a real character. And he saw the kids do that, and he mumbled like, dude, lady, like, you know, take care of your kids. But he picked the salt shaker up, and he goes, got to start all over again, right? Because it was in the sand, and you could have sand in that salt, and somebody would put it on your food. That was the Trump administration, right? But it wasn't sand. It was broken glass mixed in with the salt, you know, on purpose. And you needed to dump everything out, clean out the containers, and then put back in something that's pure, that you know what it is, that it isn't contaminated, right? Are you catching the metaphor I'm making? That's what happened post-Trump. I mean, it, there should have been a freeze on everything. And every employee should have been vetted. And I'm not talking, you know, because he was trying to destroy the agencies. He tried to destroy the USDA. Most people slept on that story, you know, but when he shut down the government after his first year in office, right? I got an uncle who spent his whole career at USDA who retired that week, but they basically, all these Washington area 
scientists and researchers that worked at USDA, they gave him an ultimatum. They said, you got to move to Kansas where we're starting a new operation or you got to retire right now. And the only reason to do that was because they wanted to destroy the organization. Because part of the whole Trump plan was just to take down government because it had too many regulations on big industry, right? And big agriculture and stuff wants to do things their own way. That's why the new plan is that they're just going to dismantle the government. That's what Bannon is now on his podcast talking about, you know, how they'll just destroy civil servants across the board. But that was one of the first examples of Trump trying to do that stuff. They just bullied the USDA and tried to dismantle it. And guys had to quit. Guys retired. They're like, I can't do this. You know, I'm not moving my family to Kansas. You know, I live in Silver Spring. Like, what the hell is this? So he was always sort of on a war path against our institutions and our agencies. You know, that's why he sort of put the cops in charge of the hen house. That's why you had Scott Pruitt, you know, and Ryan Zinke and all that early round of scumbag, nefarious dudes that came in. You know, Wilbur Ross, who lasted the whole term and, you know, filled his own pockets. Margaret, you know, Elaine Chow. <laughs> I almost said Margaret Chow. A great comedian, by the way. She absolutely killed last Sunday. But, um, you know, that, that's what was happening. And you needed to come back in and realize that. You know, you're, you're cleaning up after a disaster. You're not having a transition. There was no proper transition, right? One of Trump's people withheld funds. So Biden administration didn't even get what they needed coming in. So you were already coming in at a loss. And to have some of those people hanging on for a year and a half can portend disaster, in my opinion, because now here we are. We're just learning about this at the end of July. And we got an election in November, right? That's three months, August, September, October, you know, a little over three months. And people are going to the polls. And if you get a bunch of more chaos agents in there, right? Imagine three or four more Matt Gates's and Marjorie Taylor Greens. All you're going to hear about is Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, you know, arrest Fauci. You know, you're just going to hear insane stuff for two years. They're going to run out the clock and they're going to run somebody like DeSantis, who Trump is, you know, going to have to deal with one way or another, right? The, the, that'll be... It'll be entertaining to watch that, you know, and, and Trump will probably cut a deal where he'll make DeSantis pick like Don Jr. or somebody as his running mate. I don't know that DeSantis will do it. I'm saying that'll probably be the initial offer from Trump world, you know, to, to keep their family foot in the door, so to speak. But there'll be a cash payout or something, you know, and Trump will, you know, sort of disappear, not disappear. He'll never disappear until he dies. He'll you know, he'll, he'll transition into whatever the new, you know, MAGA world order looks like. They'll let him continue to do rallies or something. You know, as long as he can keep the cash spigot on, he'll, he'll accept that because I don't think he really wants to go back to D.C. He just doesn't want to go to jail. He didn't show up the first time, right? He spent a calendar year of his term on the golf course. He didn't go to work every day until noon, and he lived upstairs, right? Imagine if your commute was a flight of freaking stairs to get to your office and you didn't show up till noon, that's dysfunction, right? Because he's a drug addict and he has to wake up and snort Adderall and see what they're saying about him on Fox and Friends and jerk off to Ivanka and put on his orange makeup and his fake hair and his shoe lifts and his girdle and his diaper. And then he can show up in the office and have people tell him how great he is. That's how dysfunctional this guy is. 
That's who was running your country. You know, a guy who beat his first wife, a guy who had sex with teenage girls at Jeffrey Epstein's house. That is beyond dispute. I know somebody who was there. And she said, no, you won't believe what those men did to women. And she still messed up. And Trump started grooming her when she was 12 and skating on his ice rink. So that's the man he was. He used to hit on women in the lobby, not women, girls. High school field trips would go to Trump Tower and use the public restrooms. Right? And why would a germaphobe have public restrooms in his lobby at Trump Tower? You can't find a public restroom anywhere in New York City, and Trump conveniently had them. So if you were on a school trip from the tri-state area, you knew that was a place you could go to Starbucks and you could use a restroom, right? And trips did it, eighth grade, ninth grade, grade trips. And Trump would prowl the lobby and hit on these 14-year-old girls all the time. There's video of him doing it going up an escalator escalator, and saying, hey, how old are you guys? 13? I'll be dating you in a few years, huh? Who says that? You know, what kind of 50-year-old man says that? If I were to go over to the Danbury Mall right now <laughs> and try that, not that I would, but, you know, what would, what would be the outcome of that? But when your name's on the building and you're a powerful guy and there's two ex-NYPD sergeants of, on either side of you, Keith Schiller being one of them, you get away with that stuff. And then when you're president of the United States, you get away with stuff like that. Like showing up at the office at noon, like spending a year on the golf course, making the Secret Service carry your bags, charging them 20 bucks for a bottle of water. You know, it's $700 an hour to rent a golf cart on your golf course or whatever it was, some exorbitant fee. You know, you get away with that. There was an apartment when Trump got elected the Department of Defense needed an apartment in Trump Tower to keep the nuclear football in, right? Because the rules are like the crew that has that football always has to be sort of right next to the president in case something happens and he's got to put the codes in, right? So they needed a space in Trump Tower and they rented an apartment. And, it, you know, say that apartment normally would have been like 10 grand a month. Trump charged him like 110000 a month. He completely jacked up the rent on his own government for keeping the nuclear football, like sort of probably the most sacred item, you know, in, in global, you know, doomsday scenario stuff that most people would be like, hey, I'll give it to you at cost. You know, I got to pay the maintenance on it, but I'm not trying to rip off the government. It's such an honor to be president, you know, and that's such a weighty thing. Let's just make sure it's handled properly. Not Trump. He was like, nah, I'm jacking you to the tune of an extra hundred grand a month, you know? That's who he was. That was day one. You know, and, and actually at that time, Secret Service saw it happen and said, we're not going to make the same mistake. And that's how they ended up on trailers, in trailers on 56th Street. Because they were like, screw that. We're not going to blow our budget on an apartment. So then we had to, as New Yorkers, lose access to 56th Street for four years. Right? That's who he is. You know, he turned the Secret Service into his baggage handlers and his drug mules for his son. Think of the guys walking around with Don Jr. knowing he's got an eight ball in his pocket. You know, and I said, I went to, I don't, I haven't, Bobby Angle is still married to somebody in my class. I'm friends with her brother. They were twins. You know, they're still married and they have kids and he retired and went to Tampa and now he's in the, you know, counterfeit money side of things, but he's lawyered up. He's obviously an accomplice in an insurrection at this point. And I'm not saying he's guilty of anything, but he ain't 
a straight shooter. He didn't come clean. He didn't testify. He didn't do the honorable thing. He may think he did, but he didn't. And that's what Trump does. He gets people to corrupt themselves. And some people, that's not a long journey. Some people don't even see it happening because they're the sort of types that buy into the bullshit. You know, if you're a conservative and a Republican, there's people that, you know, still think Trump is a good good thing. He's from a town, Bobby Engels, and from Putnam Valley, where I grew up, you know? It's MAGA land now. I haven't been there in 30 years. I don't live far from there now. I, I wouldn't go there. You know, I saw someone recently I went to high school with, and the dude looked at me like he wanted to kill me. You know, at, at a sort of little reunion thing. A guy would barely shake my hand, you know? Which I get, you could have resentments from high school, but it's more than that. Like, you feel the division in our country. Like, that guy's a liberal, that guy's a dem, and I'm an NRA patriot, you know? And God knows how bad the QAnon stuff is on all these people, right? Because you have Mike Flynn, and you have all these... You know, dudes that were in positions of power are just completely going to the dark side now and having all these rallies, you know, and, and spewing this hatred into people, you know, and this psychological weaponized BS that they all buy. And that's why it's so crucial, you know, that we show up in November and vote. And that's why we keep an eye on who the chaos agents are, right? This week we had the announcement of the forward party, which is Andrew Yang, you know, who's definitely got a screw loose. There's just something off about that dude, right? Who's been rejected as a presidential candidate, rejected as mayor of New York. And by the way, when he was running for mayor, I got approached by like a third party, somebody who deals with comedy writers online and stuff and said like, hey, we're looking for comedians, you know, to write some jokes, like five tweets a week about the New York mayor's race and we'll pay you like $250 a week or a month or something. And I'm just like, no, my Twitter's not for sale. I'm like, hell no, right? And they said, is it the money? Because we can, you know, we can increase the offer. And I said, no, it's the morality. I'm not doing it. But it was clearly Andrew Yang who was behind that offer, that he was just trying to get people to tweet and sort of troll about the mayor's race. You know, that's a guy who's weaponized sort of like online culture, right? All of his followers have blue hats. And if you criticize them, they'll swarm your account. You know, he doesn't have original ideas. The universal basic income idea comes from a mayor in California, an African-American leader who's a visionary, who's implemented it in a town in California, and it's working, right? So he wasn't even coming in with an original idea, and it was basically a bait-and-switch thing where he was going to screw people. You know, if he gave you a 1000 bucks a month and took away your Social Security and your health care, that ain't a good deal, okay? So, you know, it was a... It was a gimmick politically to begin with. You know, not to say that something like that isn't a good idea down the road, but it wasn't the time, you know, when you're going up against Trump. But that guy doesn't care. He's not thinking about that. He's thinking about himself. So he starts a new party this week. It's Andrew Yang, David Jolly, Miles Taylor, you know, the guy who had all this dirt on the administration and sat on it until he got a book deal and then released it anonymously to get a bunch of press. And Christine Todd Whitman, the elegant former governor of New Jersey, who three days after 9-11, when she was EPA administrator, another case of putting somebody who's an industry person in charge of an agency that's supposed to police industries. And she said, three days after 9-11, all of our tests indicate that the air is perfectly safe to breathe. 
right? Which it wasn't. You know, I lived 180 East End after 9-11, and the wind would come up the East River in the days, weeks, and months after, and it would... It was a nice time of year, so we'd leave the windows open. It's a high-floor apartment. You'd get this cross breeze coming off of Hell's Gate, which is where the East River sort of heads out into the Sound in Long Island. The Harlem River comes in, and uh, it's a big shipping lane, but these winds and tides change there a lot, and the wind would change at 3 in the morning, and the apartment would fill up with this acrid smoke, you know, the smell of a million burning computers you know, in plastics and, and something more sinister, you know. You could tell there was an organic element that was very heavy psychologically, as you could imagine. But to anybody, there was no way that air was safe to breathe. And in the years since, the 20 years since, we've lost 5,000 people, almost 5,000 people from cancer, you know, from, from, you know, forms of cancer that they contracted working on the pit. And part of that was going to be unavoidable, but you don't have to lie to people three days after and say the air is safe to breathe, right? It was not. My friend's a cop, spent a year working on that burn pit. I did a special episode with him. He lives in California now, and he's had a million kinds of health issues and cancers and shit from it. So Christine Todd Whitman is your other person that Andrew Yang has brought in for this forward party to siphon off votes from the Democrats, to say people want another choice. It's like renovating your house in the middle of an earthquake. Now's not the time for that other choice. Somewhere down the road, when things stabilize, we can talk. No problem. But not in this kind of emergency. And I don't trust that, you know, their motivations are anything but nefarious to begin with. I think that's more dark money funding that. Because the other big theme this week was on Twitter was young activists against gun control trashing the Democrats. You know, guys with big followings. So that happens. The young people hear it. Yang comes up with this scam, and it has buzzwords that people like to use to feel smart. You can see a lot of similarities in the whole crypto thing. It's like, bro, you're just beholden to, you know, the banking industry. You know, I got a non-fiat currency. You're addicted to flat currency. Get with the times, you know. And with the forward party, it's, bro, you're just addicted to the duopoly. You know, I kept seeing that in my replies when I criticized him. The duopoly. Like, that's a word you say to your buddy when you're smoking a joint in the car at community college, you know, in the parking lot before you go into class and you're trying to feel smart and sound smart. And that's a lot of the appeal of this stuff. Guys that aren't really informed about the complexity of what we're facing and the danger get these talking points and a nifty, simple thing to sort of engage in on Twitter, and you see your other bros are doing it, and then you get to put a blue hat or a to-the-moon cryptocurrency thing. And you're trying to tell people, like, hey, this is a scam. Elon Musk is not trying to make you rich, you know? Matt Damon and whoever else is selling you cryptocurrency does not have your best interest at heart. It's a Ponzi scheme, and they're at the top of it. And it's the same thing with Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang was born in Schenectady, New York. That's in the capital region. It's a town right outside of Albany. He went to Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire. Okay, He's an Albany dude, right? He fled back there after the pandemic hit Manhattan. He could go back there. It's the 20th New York Congressional District 20. District 21 is Elise Stefanik's district, so they're right next door and they have a lot of crossover, right? He could have gone up there, 
because at least Stefanik is exploiting all the people north of Albany where it's very rednecky, very MAGA now. And he could try to make some inroads there. He could challenge her. He could point out her, her, her hypocrisy, right? He could spend his money and his political capital and his following's attention on illuminating something like that. You know, somebody who's completely anti-democratic has completely thrown her lot in with Trump, you know, contradicting even her own statements in 2016 when she was anti-Trump, being pro-NRA when you had a massive, you know, horrific mass shooting up in Buffalo this year, right? But he doesn't do any of that. He's like, let me get a couple of Republicans and we're going to siphon off some votes from the Dems and try to appeal to MAGA. And a lot of the people that were replying on this stuff were, were straight MAGA guys. Dudes that were coming after me were like straight up MAGA accounts. Why do you want any of that? You don't court misogyny. Don't court xenophobia and racism. And don't put this like sort of shiny object in the way of impressionable people that are not that engaged to begin with. We need them to get engaged with the Democrats. Like I said next week, we need to have rallies and stuff. You know, when I was in L.A., I was sort of informally like trying to talk to every young person, you know, sort of 35 and under, uh, the Uber guys, the dudes at my hotel. I would say, I'm in town, I'm doing something for Adam Schiff. They would all say, who's Adam Schiff? These are people in Los Angeles. He's a congressman from Burbank who's a national politician. If you don't know who he is, after the last five years, you don't, you haven't been following politics. You're not informed. But these same like Uber driver bros would have all these catchphrases locked and loaded about things, you know, and, and, and it's like the Joe Roganization of American male minds and female minds, you know, people want to sound smart without having any substance and not really knowing the players and what's going on. And people like Andrew Yang or whoever's behind him sense that. You know, they build these online armies and then they sort of, you know, they get a free pass in a lot of ways. It was like Herschel Walker when he was challenged to a debate. He said, I'm not going to do it for a debate. I'm, gonna, I'm just doing it for the fans. Doing it for the fans. Like, what are you talking about? Michael Cohen asked me to come on his podcast last summer and he said, our mutual fans would appreciate it. Fans? You went to prison for lying on behalf of Trump. You know, you used to pay off his mistresses. You kept your mouth shut for a long time, and if he had brought you to D.C., we never would have heard from you again, right? But he threw you out, and your only play left was to become, you know, a left-wing whatever you are, right? But fans? This isn't about fans. I don't call the people who follow me fans, and I'm an actual performer. You were a mob lawyer, dude, you know? So, but... I'll get attacked for saying that. Ever since then, I've gotten attacked for criticizing him. Like, people don't even understand what they're up against, you know? And you have to look at all of these players and what is their motivation, you know? Because we're in such extraordinary times. It's not a time for a third party. It's not a time, listen to my podcast. I'm a good guy now. And he very well may be a good guy. I'm not trying to character assassinate Michael Cohen. I'm just saying, like... He went from going to prison for lying about this stuff. He's never come clean about Elliot Broidy, which is basically like they paid a playmate who got pregnant to have an abortion, which was most likely Trump's. He hasn't talked about the people I know, right? So the, I know of things that you haven't heard about that he would certainly know about too. You know, and there's women involved. It's their story. 
it's not mine to tell. Okay, but it's a lot, and he still lives at you know at Trump Park Avenue, so that pretty much tells you everything you need to know. But anyway, I digress. But I get mad because like people's emotions are so high, they sort of want to believe in anything and anything that like sort of appeals to that and plays off that emotion, they go for quickly. And that can be a very dangerous thing, as I'll try to explain now. It's because, say you have a forward party, and they peel off a percentage of the vote. And then say you have a young Democratic activist who happens to get really mad at the Democratic Party in October because something doesn't go his way. So he's trash-talking the Dems. Andrew Yang is over there saying, vote for us right? Because they're going after congressional districts. They're claiming they're not going to put a 2024 candidate up now, but they're going to go after congressional districts. So if you have that combination in these districts that have been completely gerrymandered, gerrymandered in the years since Trump took office, you know, in these Dan Crenshaw kind of districts, it's going to be dangerous because we're talking about fractions of a vote anyway, you know? Ron DeSantis won by like 5,000 or 8,000 votes. That's, that's an infinitesimal percentage. And look at the damage he's done. You'll probably never get him out of power in Florida unless he becomes governor. You know, we had a rally last week where he was speaking to young people and they had legit Nazi flags flying outside the rally. He's dismantled public education in Florida. That's strategic. That's so you have an army of dumbasses that are going to do whatever he said. I read a, a piece from a teacher this week who had to train one of these teachers that are now qualified by DeSantis's executive order in Florida. And if you're a veteran or married to a veteran, if you're the spouse of a veteran, you qualify to be a teacher. So there's this lady whose husband retired from the military 20 years ago. And she's now a teacher. And the requirement is you have to spend like five or six hours observing a certified teacher in the classroom, right? So this lady was here watching an actual teacher. And at the end of the day, she had to ask the teacher what the teacher meant by phonetic spelling and arithmetic. And there was some other thing. And it was a third grade class, right? You know, this woman did not have a college degree and she was now going to be a certified state teacher in Florida. That is insane. No American would have predicted anything like that 25 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. That sort of thing is going to become commonplace in these red states. It's just going to be a Christo-fascist like brainwashing organization and all the money is going to get funneled to the private schools and the charter schools, you know, that are outright Christian. Right? And they're going to teach this revisionist history to kids that are barely going to be taught to read. And then in a, in a matter of years, those kids are out on the street. Right? And they'll populate the fast food restaurants. You know, they'll, they'll take the, the low-wage jobs that the Republicans are bitching about can't be filled now. And that the Republicans oppose unemployment you know, and relief checks. Right? Because they say people don't want to work because you're giving them a handout as if, you know, you can skate off of $2,000 for a year. Meanwhile, billionaires are getting $8 million PPP checks. You know? I could tell you some stories about entertainers that got massive checks. That just disgusts me. 
and I will tell you someday. I'm still trying to process it, you know, but that system got abused like crazy, and the people that actually needed the help are begrudged the meager unemployment and relief checks they get because there's not enough people to hand you your Hardee's meal as you drive through in your jacked-up pickup truck, you know, in Daytona Beach or wherever the hell. Do you know what I'm saying? So they're breeding a generation of uneducated fast food workers in Florida that are going to, you know, salute the flag and think Christ is king and do whatever DeSantis, whoever the next leader says. That's, that's what you're facing. You know, you're facing a takeover from a Christo-fascist, well-armed, super ignorant, but super well-funded from dark money, you know, organization. That, that is there to benefit billionaires, that is there to benefit the oil and gas industry and the pharmaceutical industry and any other industry that pays up. And they own politicians like Joe Manchin. You know, they own people like Ron DeSantis. You know, they, they're beholden to foreign governments like Dr. Oz, who's basically an agent of Turkey. It came out this week that Dr. Oz has a secret apartment in Fairview, New Jersey, where he kept a couple of Turkish radicals that would deny the Armenian genocide, which is when Turkey, you know, committed a Holocaust against indigenous Armenian people and others, Greeks and stuff, some Syrians. You know, it'd be basically like a German saying the Holocaust never happened, right? That, that the Turkish equivalent was being put up and paid for in a secret apartment that Dr. Oz had near his, you know, 14-room mansion on the Palisades overlooking the Hudson River in New Jersey. That guy is running for governor, I mean for Senate in Pennsylvania because he wants to get the cleric, you know, the rebel dissident cleric who spoke out against Erdogan that Erdogan's been trying to snatch for years, that Erdogan literally hired Mike Flynn to kidnap. That's all on the record, you know. That's part of the reason Obama told Trump this guy's a foreign agent. He works for Putin. He works for Erdogan. Don't trust him, right? And Trump didn't listen and had to fire Flynn and then pardon Flynn and then bring Flynn back into the fold. And now Flynn's sort of in charge of the QAnon wing of MAGA. So these guys are all beholden to foreign adversaries, big business, and they got a good scam going, right? They got a guns, flags, God, right? And people are lapping it up. You know, they voted against veterans health care for people affected by burn pits this week in Congress because they were mad at the Democrats, right? Because the Democrats wanted to put in some money for climate change and stuff, you know? They were just mad, and they didn't want to give a win. So they let people that are already suffering suffer, suffer a little more. You know, they hastened their deaths. People who served their country prosecuting two wars that we fought ostensibly for 9-11, and that the leader of their party, Donald Trump, said this week on ESPN, when asked about the criticism he was getting from New Jersey families who lost 750 New Jerseyans the morning of September 11, 2001, when he was asked about that, he said, hey, we never got to the bottom of Saudi Arabia anyway. Like, what do we know of Saudi Arabia? And they spend a lot of money. They've made me rich over the years, so why would I deny them this wonderful opportunity? We don't know what happened in 9-11. That was the President of the United States. That was the leader of the GOP who said that. The morning after, Republicans in Congress blocked a bill that would have given funding to people that are dying 
because their job was to stand next to a big pit that they would dump oil on and burn up munitions and computers and whatever the hell else, you know, human waste, it didn't matter. It's like 9-11, right? You know it's bad to breathe. Like whenever you see that thick black smoke like you're seeing in Ukraine all the time when Russia bombs stuff, that doesn't go away. That's bad for any living creature that gets exposed to it. The least you can do is take care of the people. You're not going to save their lives, but you can at least make it more comfortable and maybe save some lives by treating it and funding it. And the Republicans are like, nah, we want to block the Dems. And then they're high-fiving. Ted Cruz is high-fiving, fist-bumping Josh Hawley and, you know, fake, you know, Gomer Pyle like John Kennedy from Louisiana who went to Oxford, you know, but talks like he's like a rube cooking your chicken fried steak at a diner somewhere in Taxahatchee or whatever the hell, right? It's all a show. Ted Cruz is, you know, fat Wolverine with his beard, you know? frying bacon on his AR-15, and the people are voting for him. How many vets are from South Texas, you know, or Texas in general? It's probably an oversized percentage of people that were affected by this stuff, and they're fist-bumping human suffering. That's where they're at, because they know the con is so good. The groundwork has been laid so firmly. The tracks are down for this train of autocracy, and xenophobia, and homophobia, and transphobia, and outright racism, and Christo-fascism, and Nazism, right? That train is rolling. It is on the tracks, and it is headed towards D.C. and democracy itself. And we need all hands on deck to stop it. We don't need some whack-job narcissist saying, I'm starting a third party. That's what America wants. We don't need Elon Musk saying, I think DeSantis is the next leader. You don't need those chaos agents looking out for their self-interest. You need people. You need people going to the polls unified as Democrats. It's Democrats that allowed you to have a weekend off in a five-day work week. It's Democrats that have safety, you know, in the workplace that you don't have 11-year-olds, you know, in a factory sewing clothes or digging out coal, as used to happen not more than 100 years ago, right? It's Democrats that gave you Social Security, which is the next thing they're going for. So you lose the House and Senate and get a Republican president, goodbye Social Security. And look at what we've done in this economy in the last 20 years. Look how so many people have lost so much. What is that going to look like? You know, when my generation retires, I'm 51, you know? You already go into a CVS and you'll have some 85-year-old behind the counter and it breaks your heart. Some of them want to work, but some of them have to work, you know? It shouldn't be that way. And it didn't used to be that way until Republicans got in control and Wall Street and corporate money and appeasing shareholders became more important than human lives. And that's where we're at now. And they see a win, you know, because they got so much money that it's hard to fight back against for your average folks. But the one thing we have on our side is we have the people. We have the numbers, we have the truth, and we have the spirit. And that is what needs to be courted. That's what needs to be organized. You don't peel away from that, right? 
Like I was saying last week about the concerts, we need like a Woodstock. If you're having a Woodstock, you're not like, hey, I'm having my own concert a couple farms away. <laughs> you know, come to my concert instead. No, because your concert's not going to be the one that changes the world. You know, so we need the Woodstock. You know, we need everybody organized. We need marches. You know, we haven't had any major marches. We've had marches across the city when Roe v. Wade, but it's kind of quieted down. We got to tell people, this is what we're up against. We need to get women's rights back. We need to protect gay marriage. We need to get assault rifles out of our streets and our schools. You know, we need to get education funded and give people opportunities. We need to give people health care. You know, we need to basically get back all the stuff they're trying to steal from us. It's like that Dylan, you know, sign. If you're not part of the solution, like, get out of the road. Like, I'm mangling the lyric, you know what I mean? But that's where it's at now. You know, the times, they are changing, you know, and not for the better, right? As the way it's trending, but we are going to make it better. We are going to come together. Love does always win eventually, but you have to have awareness, you know? And if there's a theme in this podcast, it's awareness. You can't deny things. You can't just react emotionally. You have to look at stuff and say, what's motivating this? What is this person doing it for? You know, are they doing it for themselves? Or are they doing it because it's the right thing to do? Right? That, that should be like something that you apply to anybody you, you sort of listen to or follow. And anybody who's asking you to follow them should immediately be suspect. It just always creeps me out. You know, so anyway, you know, I was talking about music. We saw that Joni Mitchell thing last week. It was reminding me of, you know, Neil Young would have a benefit every year, the Bridge School benefit. And I got to do that with CSNY. And I got to go to Neil's Broken Arrow Ranch, which is just crazy. He has like this barbecue there. And I remember driving up the road with Stephen Stills. And uh, it's like this road where you drive for like a half an hour on his property before you even get to the place. And then we get to the place and there's like a dude standing in a field with a clipboard. And I roll down the window and uh, I'm like, hey, it's Stephen Stills in the car. <laughs> He's like, oh, okay, yeah, go, go park over there. And we go park and I turn and I see Neil's house and it was like if the, the, the hedge fund or if the Hobbit had a hedge fund, this is what the house would be like. You know, it was like this awesome sort of like tree house vibe in this beautiful setting and he's got the barn and the famous pond where he played Graham Nash Harvest. I've probably told that story before, but, you know, Graham was invited up to the, and I was there, Graham was there that night too, of course, and we were actually standing in Neil's dining room, and I looked out the window, and I saw the pond, and I was like, Graham, is that the pond? He's like, yep, that's it. So anyway, so Graham went up there, it's the early 70s, Neil had recorded Harvest, and, uh, Graham went up to the house and Neil's like, I want to play you my new album. You know, you need to listen to it. And so they're like, all right. And they walk down and, and Graham's thinking they're going to walk down to the barn and, and check it out where he was recording. And, and Neil walks over to a rowboat by the pond and goes, get in the boat. And Graham's like, what? Neil's like, get in the boat. So Graham gets in the boat. Neil gets in. They row out to the middle of the pond. And Neil goes, okay, go. And an engineer comes out, and he's got two huge speakers, one in the barn and one up by the house, and he starts playing the album. And they play through side one, and the engineer comes back out. You know, it sounds amazing. And the engineer comes back out, and he goes, How's it sound, Neil? And Neil goes, More barn! 
like the balance, you know, more barn. It's one of the great rock and roll stories. That's a Graham Nash story, and I'm butchering it. But, you know, I'm mentioning it because it made me think about the spirit of an event like that, a bridge school benefit, you know, which Neil's been doing for decades. I think he started it in the 80s or something. You know, and you've had everybody go through there. Pearl Jam, you know, Radiohead. You know, when I was doing it, a band called Fun was playing it. Uh, Nancy Wilson and Ann Wilson from Heart, Tom Waits. Um, you know, it was always very eclectic. I think Metallica's done it. You know, he kind of makes you play acoustically for the most part, which makes sense. You know, he'll have a lot of children. It benefits the special needs children in the San Francisco area and the school that, that Neil set up to help educate these kids. So it's a very family-oriented, very positive, vibey thing. And the more acoustic, the better. Um when I did it, Tom Waits played with, uh, you know, members of Los Lobos is one of my favorite bands. It was just, it was insane, insanely good. And then I was there on the side of the stage running the teleprompter for CSNY. And I'd been having problems with the teleprompter that whole week. And we actually rehearsed before this show in Burbank. And I'll tell you the whole story here. I wasn't <laughs> going to do this, but uh, so we're in London and we're doing Royal Albert Hall shows at CSN. We're ending a show a tour and I thought I was flying back to New York and then their manager was like no who happened to be in London backstage was like no Noel you're actually flying to LA from here and we're doing the bridge school benefit next week and we have to fly into LA we're staying at the sportsman's which was this great old hotel that I stayed at with Neil and, and Crosby and stuff we're staying at the sportsman's we're going to rehearse in Burbank for a few days and then we're flying up to San Jose essentially you know to, to Shoreline Amphitheater san francisco area so, so they sort of sprung this on me you know and they're like oh and when you land in lax i rented you a car and that was the only thing i was thinking about was like oh man i gotta drive in la you know after a jet lagged overnight you know red eye flight but um and we landed and stills was waiting for me to get through baggage claim and i was like why are you still here he goes i'm giving you a ride right i was like no i got a rental he's like oh man why was I waiting? <laughs> and he left. See you tomorrow. But the main thing was I had to run the teleprompter, which I'd always done. You know, and it's good to have one on stage. If you wrote all your songs 50 years ago, you wouldn't mind having one too, especially if you happened to write them in the late 60s when there might have been a little smoke and wine and more involved in the composition. So, you know, it's a good thing to have. In a play, you have line. You know, you're always able to call out. It helps people be spontaneous. Spontaneous. They don't have to worry about it. So I'd always sort of done that off and on for them. And I had to do it for this gig because we were going in there with a smaller crew. And they said, you're also going to have to run the teleprompter for Neil Young. And now that made me nervous. You know, <laughs> I'd been around Neil a bit and we'd done some of these gigs. But, you know, I was I was comfortable with CSN. Neil intimidates me a bit, obviously. Right. So I'm like, God damn, you know, I got to do this for Neil. So I show up in Burbank at the sound stage and I talked to Neil's guys who I knew and you know I toured with Neil's wife she opened for stills on a tour and stuff Peggy his ex-wife who passed away rest her soul but uh she we did a tour with her and kind of crazy horse at one point but um so I go into the sound stage and they're like yeah I'm like hey I'm no you know they know me but I'm like I gotta I guess I gotta run like Neil's stuff too and they give me this hard drive they give me access to a hard drive and they said, all right, yeah, here it is. You know, here's all the, you know, it's all his lyrics of all his songs written out. And I was like, how many songs are in here? And they're like, 4,000. 
Okay. And I go, well, well, which ones is he going to ask for? You know, which ones? And they said, he could ask for any of them at any time. <laughs> like, so I, I like had a panic attack. So at any given moment, I had to like call up some obscure Neil Young song and just guess at what it was going to be, you know, and find it in these like files. You know, it's kind of complicated. I'm not the greatest computer kind of guy. So I'm like having a heart attack and I'm just sort of guessing at what songs he's going to play. I'm like, long may you run. Definitely. <laughs> you know, like, you know, Ohio, like I was just sort of like picking out songs that the most likely they would do. And luckily I'd picked all the right ones. He, he, there was one or two obscure ones, but he sort of started to sing them and uh, I had enough time to find them, but it was very uh, nerve wracking because I'm right there. You know, it's a soundstage. So it's Neil, you know, Crosby, Stills, you know, Graham, me, and like a guitar tech and a monitor mixer, you know, in this little room. And I always remember when we got to the end of the rehearsal, the guitar tech, a good friend of mine, started, I won't say his name to embarrass him, but he started to put away Stills' guitars because you have like 10 guitars available, you know. He starts to put them back in the cases and snap the, the latches shut. And Neil heard one of the latches get snapped shut during a song. And goes, who did that? And he like bitches him out. And he goes, that. And people are like, hey, Neil, he's just trying to put it away. You know, it's the end of the rehearsal. He goes, I don't care. It's unaware. It's unaware. And it was a lesson, you know, because his concentration was so much. And he was serving the music and the artistry. He was like, no, man, class is in session. All of our energy needs to focus on what we're doing creating this music and making it as beautiful as possible not packing up and getting ready to go out to the car and go back to the hotel there'll be time for that right now the muse is in the room and we're gonna play so it was it was a real lesson and it you know it was a i was just like i'm glad that shit wasn't me <laughs> i looked at my buddy who was right behind me when he did it and you know he felt like an asshole like nobody wants to get yelled out by neil but neil was right you know, Neil was paying the bills. You know, we were there to serve the art. And then Neil sparked up a fatty at the end of the rehearsal, got in his Link Volt, which is a convertible, uh, like 60s, mid-60s convertible. You know, the, the in my opinion, the greatest era of American audio auto design, those, those big, long cars. I used to have a 65-old Cutlass convertible that was the same thing. It was just like a boat. But Neil's wisely converted his you know, to run on biodiesel and stuff, such, or electricity. But, um, so he, you know, then he, he gets in the car and like puts his hoodie on and like, he's got a spleef and just heads, you know, heads back to the hotel. And, uh, that was a trip, you know, but my point is we need that sort of focus, right? We need the spirit that music brings you, right? The togetherness and the excellence and the beauty, because there's a lot of beauty in taking care of people. There's a lot of beauty in legislation that can help people, you know, because without that, without taking care of basic needs of people, without ensuring basic equality and freedoms, we got nothing. We got nothing. We're living in a prison. We're living in a hell. We're living in a dystopian landscape. Instead, we could live in a bountiful cornucopia of experience and wealth and talents and diversity, right, and culture and inspiration, and art, and love, and meaning, and tenderness, and helping each other. 
And we have no idea the fruits of living that way. We haven't gotten there. You want to live in Eden? Go that direction. You know, find out what happens when we all come together and work together and look out for each other and tackle these enormous problems like our planet overheating, right? So that's what we need to focus on. We need awareness. We don't need more people trying to pull focus and get their own thing and build up their own clout and following. We need selfless action on behalf of the greater good. And I know we'll get there. And I love you guys, and I love you for listening. That was episode 74 of the Noel Kassler podcast. Come on out and see me this week if you're in Cape Cod. I'll be at the Music Room, West Yarmouth, 8 p.m. on Wednesday night. I'm heading out to the Cape on Tuesday. Cannot wait. I love me some Cape Cod. I love me some East Coast. And I love me some listeners. So thank you guys for listening. I'll see you next week. Be well. Peace.